0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Let's take a little bit of break from all that's going on in 2022, and let's look back because 25 years ago, on June 16th, 1997, the New York Mets played the New York Yankees for the very first time. And I tweeted out a video honoring what, to me, was the greatest moment, from a Met fan standpoint, in Subway Series history. Dave Malik, shutting out the Yankees, striking out Derek Teeter, the Mets winning the first ever Subway Series game. And I tweeted that video out, very innocent, very nice of me. And boy, these Yankee fans, some of their responses, what douches. I mean, this is your big moment game in June. If you are, let's be fair about this. I hope we can be. If you're 37 and older, so you're my age, your Hawks age, and you're a Yankee fan, not that you're listening to Rico Bronia, but let's just say you are. Can't you take a step back and realize that the first is amazing? We all remember our first. I'm not saying we're still in love with our first. I'm certainly not. She was, uh, well, no, nah, I'm not going to say anything. But you can could, you could imagine it. Yeah, she was, well, wh- whatever. That, that, that's not the freaking point. I was just so happy somebody was letting me sleep with them. But, <laughs> but this was our first. This was our first. The first time the New York Mets played the New York Yankees. No one could ever take away the first. And that's why that game is so memorable, because I remember walking to Yankee Stadium that night and not knowing how to feel, not knowing what to expect. Mets and Yankees had never played. It was so foreign to think that the New York Mets and the New York Yankees were going to play a regular season game, and it was going to count. Never made sense to me. It was so nuts. And to see all the Mets fans in that building that night to take over that building right out of gate, because remember the Mets scored some runs early in the first inning against Andy Pettit. That was one of those nights nice, you'll never forget. With that said, they lost the second game of that series. They lost the third game of that series. Remember the Steve Beezer balk, or at least getting David Cohen to balk, and then Tino Martinez in the game-winning hit against John Franco. That uh, still makes me sick. So it all went downhill from there. I admit that. I <laughs> mean... The pinnacle of Mets-Yankees, if you're a Mets fan, is the very first game in 1997. A few people did mention, and I totally get it, the Matt Franco game. If we ever did a full Subway Series, you know, reprieve, if you will, like a recap, the Matt Franco game is certainly a top one. It's probably pound for pound the best Mets-Yankees game of all time. Everything about that. Masada hitting the home run that Yankee fans think is the game winner. Piazza hitting the moonshot that still hasn't landed. Howie Rose has joked to Gary Cohn joke. That's the first home run in the history of Citi Field because it landed where they built Citi Field. And obviously, Matt Franco striking out because I think Mariano struck him out on that 0-2 pitch. I got to be honest. If it was Aaron Judge, he's punched out. And then ripping the game-winning hit down the run and the Mets win 9-8. Was it 9-8 or 10-9? One or the other. They won by one. Great game. Amazing game. It's not the first. Sorry. Wasn't your first? Our first was Dave Malicki. So 25 years. My God, that makes me feel old. Do you remember, Hoff? Maybe you don't. Do you, do you have like a, I know where I was during that first Subway Series game, or not as much as I do?
1: Uh, I'm trying to think. I, I probably was home watching it. I definitely was watching it, though, because it was a huge deal. If I wasn't home, I was at a family member's house or something like that because I we were all locked in. It it was that big of a deal. Again, I'm split squad, so, like, my father's side of the family is all Mets fans. My mother's side of the family is all Yankee fans. So it's, like, brutal. It's, it's It was a serious big deal in my, in my family, so we were definitely watching it wherever we were. I just don't recall if it was at my house or not. Yeah,
0: it was, it was so weird because at that time, remember, the Yankees won the World Series the year before, so they're defending world champions, and the Mets are, were trying to become relevant because 1996, the year before, was such a weird season where they had all that historical uh, breakthrough in years from Lance Johnson, Bernard Gilkey, and Todd Hundley, yet they went 71-91, and 91. and 1997 actually turned into a pretty good season. It was my first pennant race, even though they really weren't in a pennant race with the Florida Marlins that year. But they were slowly on the rise and obviously finally made the playoffs in 99. We all know what happened in 2000. But 25 years. That, that's the part that jumps out of me because it really does feel like a moment that was yesterday. The other thing in history, and, and I'm too young to remember it, but it's important, is the whole June 15th thing. Acquiring Keith Hernandez, arguably pound for pound one of the most important trades in the history of the franchise. Acquiring Don Clendenon but then the negative of trading Tom Seaver. And every time I get to June 15th, and I know the history of the Seaver trade and the Keith stuff and all that, what always jumps out at me is the oddness of June 15th being the trade deadline. Could you, could you imagine that right now? Like the trade deadline was two days ago, three days ago. That'd be nuts.
1: That'd be terrible. That'd, of course. I mean, How do you accomplish anything? Everyone's still in it technically, right?
0: Well, but that, and that's, that in lies the difference. You know, when they had the June 15th trade deadline, there were two divisions in each league. So, you had a pretty good idea if you were in a playoff race or not. So, the reason they moved it to July 31st is I think as time went by, it was kind of obvious. Like, it's just way too early. I'm actually a believer, and we'll spend a lot more time talking about trade targets. I'm going to do a few minutes on it a little bit. But, I actually think the trade deadline should be August 31st. I don't even think it should be July 31st. Now, this year it's August 2nd, but you get the idea. You want to go August 15th, I'm good with it. But we have so many playoff teams now. We have so many teams that think they're in a playoff race that I push the deadline back. And that leads me to just a few, and I, I wrote down five, I'll get to a couple, of guys who I think would be great trade targets because they're obviously going to be available. Or, let me rephrase that, they're on teams that we know suck because... We could sit here and talk about the Red Sox. Remember a month ago? Hey, if the Red Sox are terrible, let's get J.D. Martinez. They're not terrible. They're in a playoff race. They may well win one of the American League wildcard spots. So instead of speculating on a good team not being good in selling it, there are teams that you know are terrible. The Baltimore Orioles are terrible. The Detroit Tigers are likely terrible. The Oakland Days are terrible, but so let me get to my number one guy. My number one trade target. And he's on a team that is terrible. A team that we all know has no shot. And that is David Bednar, the Pittsburgh Pirates. So David Bednar last year had a very, very good season. I may have had him on my fantasy team for just a couple of weeks, and then he got hurt. But that's how I became familiar with David Bednar. That's how you usually become familiar with random relief pitchers when you're in a league. But Bednar had a very good year last year. And I had my eye, and I'm going to say, all right, he's still only 26 years old, 27 years old. Let's see if he's legitimate. The other night, because the Pittsburgh Pirates rarely win games, the Pittsburgh Pirates decided, you know what, we have a chance to win a game. Derek Sheldon doesn't know what to do with himself. Oh, my God, we may win a game. David Bednar came in with guys on I think there were a couple guys on base in the seventh inning and got the final two outs of the seventh inning. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, you know, I think he's pulling what Buck pulled last week with Edwin Diaz. He's going to use him to get some big outs in the seventh, some big outs in the eighth inning, and then he'll use somebody else to pitch the ninth inning. So Bednar then pitches the eighth. Gets five outs. David Bednar came out and pitched the effing ninth inning. David Bednar got an eight-out save against the St. Louis Cardinals. And he has been awesome all year. And there have been times in which Shelton has used him to get six outs for a save. Now, great. He's not going to have to do that here. Edwin Diaz is clearly the closer. And instead of fantasizing about, like, this elite-level closer who's more of a household name, those guys aren't going to be available because those guys are on good teams. So I wonder if the Pittsburgh Pirates look at David Bednar, who's eligible for arbitration in another year. So he's not close to free agency. He's not even that close to being paid. But do the Pittsburgh Pirates look at a 27-year-old relief pitcher who's having an freaking amazing season. I mean, he has been, how many runs has he given up this year? Three runs all season long, whatever it is. Do the Pittsburgh Pirates look at David Bednar and say, now's the time to sell. And I sure hope so. Because clearly, that's the kind of target the Mets are going to have to make. I know that Tyler McGill is now a major question health wise. David Peterson has come back down to earth, but with the hope that Max Scherzer is very, very close, maybe even making a rehab start next week, and that Jacob DeGrom, fingers crossed, can come back and pitch, and that your Carrascos had and Bassett's bounce back, could they add a starting pitcher? Sure. Would I be good with adding Molly? Sure. I don't mean the drug, I mean Tyler Molly, the Cincinnati Red Pitcher. Yes, but they got to add a reliever. And they got to go to the top of the food chain because some of these other relievers like Mark Melanson, who looks cooked, yeah. Daniel Bard, who while he's had a good year with the Rockies, I don't trust. A.J. Puck of the Oakland A's, yes, it'd be nice to add another lefty. These are all fine moves, but the big move, like a guy who can get you five, six outs in a big spot, that would be Bednar. The other guy who is, who's shaky, like, let me rephrase that. He's not shaky, but gives you a high upside, lefty, throws hard. Maybe this team we're dealing with Dillon would be uh, Soto or the Tigers. That's another guy I would take a look at. But he's, he's got a big implosion factor. I've seen Gregory Soto blow up numerous times, including on Thursday night against the Texas Rangers. Bases loaded, gave up like a bases-clearing triple. But to me, the number one relief pitching target should be David Bednar of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Now, as far as the Francisco Alvarez debate is concerned, Mark Vientos, too. A couple of young players who have just torn it up. Alvarez in double-A catching. Vientos can play third base. DH at triple-A. I would love, especially with the injuries they're dealing with, even though they're minor, Escobar, the mystery around him. Starling Marte, who right now hopefully can be back in a day or two, but is unavailable to hit. And J.D. Davis has been good. Like, since the Mets have handed J.D., not handed, but have given J.D. Davis more of a starting opportunity with Dom in the minor leagues, he's hit. He's been productive. He still seems to hit, through a lot of bad luck, but he's been productive. And I like Luis Carame, and there's ways to get him at bats by using the D8 spot. I think this would be interesting To call up Vientos for two weeks, or Alvarez, I think they both could fit this, and give them opportunities at the major league level. The Alvarez thing, though, he's a catcher. Is he ready to catch this pitching staff? We see how delicate that could be with Chris Bassett. Would you call him up just as a bat? And I'm intrigued, because you got two guys tearing up in the minor leagues, two guys who are huge prospects, Two guys with major upside. At what point do you say, I don't love what I have here? It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. there's a good chance the Mets go out and trade for a bat anyway. I totally get that, that the DH of this team come September is on a different roster. But I'd love to see what we have here. Because sometimes that young player you call up may make the biggest impact, whether it was Miguel Cabrera back in 2003, or even Michael Conforto with the Mets in 2015. So it's not burying J.D. Davis, but now does seem like an interesting time with the injuries, with the fact that you're going to want to rest guys, To call up Mark Vientos and say, I'm going to give you two weeks. Let's go. Hit. Let's see what you can do. Hit. Nick Plummer's not the answer. Nick Plummer's had his moments. But Vientos offers that big upside. Alvarez, maybe not yet. But what I'm intrigued by with Alvarez, if you call him up, you DH him two days a week. You catch him one day a week. And then you have that bat off the bench. I know you don't want to call him up and not play them, so maybe it's your DH of three days a week and you catch him once or twice a week. Plus, it gives you interesting versatility to have a third catcher on the roster. So, that is something to keep an eye on over the next few weeks, especially if both Vientes and Alvarez hit at the minor league level. You can always tweet us, at Evan Roberts, WFAN. Pete, you got any interesting comments or questions from the Twitterverse today?
1: Uh, we do. Let's first start with B BFoddy21. Are you worried about the inconsistencies with the starting pitching and hitting? I feel they always don't score enough, and they've been blown out a lot past few games.
0: It was weird. Their losses are, just feel like they're all blowouts. That's why when I, when I rack my brain and think of that brutal loss, that awful loss that you should have won that you gave away, they don't have a lot of those. Um, I prefer that when you lose, just get your ass kicked. Because, A, you save your bullets in games you don't win. You lose a close game, you lose all your top relievers in that game. They're not available the next day. I think their offense has actually been pretty damn consistent. I think they could use another bat. The pitching staff, you know, Bassett just went through a month in which he sucked. Carrasco, and I mentioned this last time on the Rico, has his starts once every four or five in which he's awful and David Peterson's a fill-in right now. Taiwan Walker's been mostly good, but you got to remember, all of these pieces in this rotation, they are three through fives. Jake and Max being healthy change everything. Having one of those guys back, dare I say both of those guys back, I think changes the entire perception of this rotation.
1: All right, let's go to at Santman23. Who is the most important Met right now, and why is it Edwin Diaz?
0: <laughs> yeah, he probably in a lot of ways he is, because I could sit here and say, well, it's Francisco Lindor or it's Pete Alonso, but in a in a horrible world where they lost one of their key bats, there are other guys who would get that opportunity to fill in, and it's one of nine guys. Like if they lost Francisco Lindor, as much as it would suck. Luis Guillerme would get a great opportunity to play every day. It would probably at least be halfway solid. If they ever lost Pete Alonso as much as that would suck, they'd probably give Dom Smith another opportunity or a Mark Vietos. And, again, it hurts them, but they'll probably be okay. They've survived without Jake. They've survived without Max. It is a really good point. If Edwin Diaz wasn't here, he just myster- mysteriously disappeared, you'd have to wonder, how would they get these big ass late in games? Where? Who's doing it? Where is it coming from? So a closer in a weird way is like an everyday player because they're going to get into a lot of games. They're going to get into maybe half the games in your season. So I know he was leading with the question, but he is probably right. I could rationalize the Mets surviving, losing almost anybody on this roster. Again, they've been without Jacob DeGrom and Max Scherzer. Losing Edwin Diaz. Who has been great for the most part. Do I still fully trust him? Not the podcast to discuss it. Maybe in a time. I guess there's a part of me that doesn't. But, yeah, he's really, really important. And the look of this bullpen would feel completely different without him.
1: We got time for two more. Go, Pete! Beautiful. All right. At Matt Salem. Mark Canna always seems to come through in big spots, whether it's runs in scoring position or when the team needs a jolt. True. Do you feel that? Do you get that, that buzz about Mark Hanna? Every time he's up with that big spot, I, he comes through?
0: I feel that way about more guys on this team than I ever have. Usually, I've got no faith in 80% of the roster, most of us as Met fans do. But I think that they have had a good balance of almost everybody coming through with a big hit. What I love about Mark Hanna is that he may not come through with the big hit, but he's going to give you an at-bat and he's going to battle you and he's going to put the ball in play. The Mets again proved in the finale of this series that putting the ball in play matters. It's a big deal. When Luis Guillermo taps the ball to Rowdy Tellez with a runner on first and nobody out, sure it could have been a double play, sure it could have been a force out, but you force your opponent to potentially make a mistake and Tellez did. So when I look at Mark Cata, who had a big home run in the finale in this series, obviously, to tie it up. It's not that I always think he's going to come through. I, I have confidence he's going to put together a quality at-bat and put the ball in play. And when you put the ball in play, good things can happen.
1: And finally, from Steven Prosciutto, what are the former Mets were considered to be the name of this podcast?
0: What other former Mets?
1: Yes. Nobody!
0: <laughs> the origin of this name i think this is pretty simple is that we were gonna do a med podcast i'm not a big fan of cliches you know and not to pick on any other podcast because there's a lot of great med podcasts out there in all fairness but i didn't want to do something you know kind of like what i do with the nets brooklyn basketball podcast. it's a boring crappy name i mean no no offense it just is what it is and so our boss spike eskin who's, you know, an average boss. I don't know how great he is, but he's all right. The one thing I think he does great is he has a Philadelphia 76ers podcast, and it's called Rights to Ricky Sanchez. And Google Ricky Sanchez if you care. And I said this to Spike. I said, I don't really like you very much, but I love that podcast name. I just, that's the kind of creativity I like because it's just so weird. And so I asked him, I said, do you mind if I rip you off? And he said, of course, go ahead. And I said, I should name my podcast a random met. And my favorite met as a kid was Rico Bronia. And to many people listening, that's random. So Rico Bronia. So we never considered anyone else. Though I did jokingly call it the Butch Husky ones just to see how it would sound. Welcome to the Butch Husky. Coming up on the Butch. But now nah, Rico's my guy. I love Rico Bronia. You may catch me at City Field wearing a Rico Bronia jersey. I do it once in a while. He's my guy. So it was more just, let's just, first of all, I think names are overrated. Like, who cares what the name of the podcast is? If you like the podcast, great. If you think it sucks, it is what it is. Like, the name of it isn't going to change your view. So I just wanted something different. I ripped my boss off uh, because it was, you know, rights to Ricky Sanchez is random. And I thought of uh, my favorite former random met, and that would be Rico Bronia. And at some point, Rico will join us. At some point. Probably during the offseason. We'll talk a little, uh, First base defense with the great Rico Brogna. We'll be back and we'll record Sunday night. Oh, I'm sorry, Monday night after the Mets will wrap up their four-game series coming up with the Miami Marlins, where hopefully this homestand will continue to go up. A nice two out of three series victory against the Milwaukee Brewers. So check it out for the next Rico Bronia And I guess um, I was told that if you want, you should rate and review of the podcast or something. I guess you could do that. But someone told me I should say that. So rate review the Rico Brogna podcast, thanks, nice. even if you think it sucks. Because if you think it sucks and you spend enough time rating it, I kind of admire that. But if you think it's great, do that too. Either way, Carter Roberts, 2 o'clock on the fan, Tiki Tierney, 10 a.m. on the fan. Thank you for listening to another edition of Rico Brogna.